are we standardizing the the velocity into the deacceleration? And that was the big part, and that was the hard part to do. So what we we figured out is is guys are trying to cheat the test because they want to be better. They want to get better marks, right? Like that's every athlete ever. So what they were doing is they were pulling up before and we're having to use our coach's eye to say, okay, that wasn't fast enough in or that was slow enough. So what we did was we put timing gates. So we don't count we, we don't count the score or the data unless it's at least 90% of their best 10-yard sprint. To the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high performance sport. Deceleration training and testing is getting much more attention, probably the attention that it deserves based on the research. And Joey Gracio is one of the coaches that is putting some incredible information out in this area. So we leverage some of Damien Harper's content in his podcast a few months ago and joey builds on that with how he takes some of that research and applies it into his practice how he applies it into the assessments that he does to understand what his athletes need but also pretty more importantly how he trains those qualities in the weight room with certain training modalities and then on the on the turf on the track to develop the the technique side of things to maximize deceleration ability. So if you're interested in getting to know more about this very much a growing area, take a listen to this episode for the next 50, 55 minutes. It's a really incredible insight into what Joey's doing at FAU, at Florida Atlantic University. So enjoy this episode. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Satanta College. Satanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit tantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH 
to start your 30-day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Joey. Joey Garacio, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for giving up a little bit of your time. Appreciate you having me on, man. I, I'm I'm an avid listener of the podcast and I appreciate you having me here. No, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Read a few of your articles recently on deceleration. Just devastated that they're not on Sportsmith, but that's okay. That's all right. Um, but delighted to get you on to have a little chat around deceleration because I think it's a, and you know more than I, you know a lot more than I do, it's definitely a topic that is catching people's attention. Pretty uh, had lots of under attention and is now getting hopefully the attention it deserves through yourself, Damien Harper, who we had a little chat around beforehand. But before we dive into deceleration, training it, testing it, would you mind just giving us a bit of an intro to you, what you're currently doing, what you've done before, all that good stuff? Yeah, so uh, I was the typical meathead in high school. I liked really, I liked training a lot. Um, I got to college and, and I figured out that I could actually make a profession out of it. Um, so, you know, I, I tried to dive in head first, uh, been to a bunch of schools, did a graduate assistantship, um, and then had the opportunity to be an assistant at Ole Miss, which really just opened my eyes up to uh, just the the spectacle that is big college football, you know, and, and the, the, the training process and how you develop those athletes and being around elite athletes. Uh, I worked under Coach Paul Jackson, who's at Utah State, who's just, in my opinion, one of the best strength coaches in America. Um, and then from there, I had the opportunity to go to Colorado State and be the, be the head strength coach there. And then uh, three years ago, I got the call to come down here to, to Boca Raton, sunny Florida, um, and couldn't turn it down. Uh, I've been here three years. Uh, we went to a bowl game uh, my first year here, and, and we're in the process of hunting to get into the conference championship picture. Um, I train football. Uh, I do have uh, assistants on staff that oversee other sports, so I try to help them out as well with that. Um, and then we, in the offseason, because of where we're located and just because of a lot of players I've, I've had the opportunity to coach over the years, we do have a, a big NFL following as far as a crew that comes down here in the offseason trains here. So alongside training our guys here uh we do train a lot of guys that come down we had like a group of like 20 to 25 uh nfl players that were with us in and out of the building probably all the way from uh february through through july so uh you know uh that's that's basically it right there for for what i do you know i I program and plan for football uh anything that has anything to do with performance is going to be uh, down down my street is what I got to deal with. And, um, you know, I, I try to help coach out with planning practices. You know, obviously, offseason, I'm the head coach in the offseason. That's that's how it is. He turns the team over to me, and then I turn it back over to him at the end of July. Um, you know, and, and it's it's an awesome role. It, it, you know, it's something that I really, really enjoy. 
as football, American football for our non-US uh, audience, has, has football always been the ultimate aim to be head, of, head strength and conditioning coach at a college football team? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I played football my entire life. I played baseball too as well and wrestled. I played multiple sports, but football is what has afforded me uh, my lifestyle up to this point. It's gotten to me where I'm at. You know, um, I've always had a love for the game. I just never wanted to be a football coach because I hate recruiting and I hate sitting and doing film study for multiple hours like that. I couldn't, I couldn't, I can't do it. I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so I get the added benefit about or, uh, about being around the game, being around the guys, uh, being able to mentor, being able to help them, being able to drive their performance, all those different things that go along with being in that and being around the game 24-7. And then, like I said, you know, it, it's it's provided me a, uh, a living. You know, it's 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 my driving force. You know, my son plays football. It's, it's just something that's part of my life that, you know, is, is always going to be part of my life. Nice. So on the deceleration side, what – what was it about or what is it currently about deceleration that's catching your attention and giving you the impetus to dive into the research and, and write about it? So it, it always starts with a problem, right? Like you always start researching something because something's going bad. And in 2020, I felt in the preparation of our football team, I felt like we did a really good job from an acceleration standpoint. I felt like we did a really good job from a maximum velocity standpoint. I felt like we were strong. I felt like we were powerful. And then when we did, uh, when we went back and we looked at, okay, what are injury trends? What are uh, specific metrics that took a hit during the season? What we noticed was is our RSI decreased as the season went on. Okay, but our vertical jump numbers were were about above average or about on average from what we started the season at. Okay, and then with the injury trends, the one thing that stood out to me was we had a ton of ankle injuries. You know, and I know you when injuries, you can't prevent them. So if people say they prevent injuries, they're, you know, that's BS. You can't prevent an injury. But at the same time, if there's a rash of injuries, there's definitely something going on there. So that offseason, um, one of my assistants happened to show me uh, a Jonas Dodo, uh, his, his platform, his online platform, and it had a deceleration course. And I'm watching the course. I, I signed up for it because I wanted to. I wanted to, you know, just expand my my own knowledge and see see what I was missing. And Damian Harper was on there a ton, and there was a ton of other people in there. And I just kept looking and I kept watching the deacceleration portion over and over and over again. And I'm like, this is a specific skill that we're not training, right? I do change the direction work just like everybody else out there. We do acceleration. We do maximum velocity work. Um, we do agility work, but we weren't we weren't pinpointing deceleration. We weren't putting an emphasis on it. Uh, we weren't making it one of the one of the four pillars of of the program like it is now. And my mind went back to the ankle injuries, and I'm like, okay, well, a lot of times, where do these ankle injuries occur? Like, where do they twist their ankles? And a lot of times, it was in a deceleration phase. Um, you know, where they got out of position, their foot didn't get down in the right way. And they happen to roll it. And, and that was one of those deals for me. It was like, okay, well, let's try to increase our deceleration capabilities. Okay. And let's see if it has a positive effect on that injury trend that was going on at the time. And our ultra, our, our ultimate measurement was going to be that spring ball period where we had 15 practices 
Um, we had eight weeks of training prior to that 15 week practice or 15 practices that came up. And what we did was, is we dedicated essentially, uh, a full day to stopping, to breaking, to, to deacceleration. And what we saw was in that, in that 15, uh, practices, we only had one ankle injury, you know, so it, it dramatically decreased. And, and that was where I was like, okay. This is awesome because now, just like anything, like we want to try to provide a vaccine for potential issues. We want to provide, you know, that the the, the solution to the problem that we, we previously had. Um, the one thing that we didn't foresee coming because I wasn't that deep into the research yet was the performance side of it. Our guys were we, we were hitting higher max speeds. Um, we had no soft tissue injuries all the way throughout. OK, and then. The thing that really stood out to me was our RSI in that period, in that in that 15 day practice period was maintained and was even higher than when we started in January. So, you know, again, so to me, it was like, OK, we're 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 checking a box that we previously weren't checking. That was something that needed to be trained. We weren't putting an emphasis on it. We didn't take it as serious as those other training elements. And it really it probably hindered our athletes and, and our athletes suffered because of it, but we wanted to rectify it and make sure that we, we added that element of training in there. So now when we look at, like I have, I look at training and I try to simplify it in a way to where I look at, there's, there's capacities that every athlete needs to possess, right? And depending on the sport, they're going to need different levels of it. So I look at, they're going to need some level of endurance. And I think people bastardize the term endurance, right? Endurance is just repeatability of an action. Like how many times, whatever that action may be, for a cross-country runner that's running, for an old lineman that might be change direction and, um, you know, blocking, punching, okay, punching power, all right? All athletes need peak force. They need to be able to, to, to show and express levels of, of peak force, okay? All right, all athletes need rate of force development. So now that you have higher levels of impulse or you have higher levels of force capabilities, okay, sports are regulated by time. Like you only have a specific amount of time windows available to you to perform a movement, whether it's running, change direction, punching, whatever it is. And what tends to be what we've, what we've seen through our own case studies here through using uh, dart fish and, and, and putting timestamps on specific movements is they're all under 500 milliseconds, right? So when you go back to like Zizworski and science and practice, what is, that's the explosive strength deficit. Like you're only going to have a certain amount of time to express that force. You better be able to express as much force as possible in that time parameter. So rate of force is critical. And then the last one is, is your stretch shortening cycle capabilities. How elastic are you, right? Because that's really going to be where you, you start to bridge the gap between, okay, strong and then athletic. That's where I look at it. So when you look at those four, those are the four capacities. No matter what sport, there's going to be certain levels that you have to obtain that are basically going to guarantee you that you not fail, right? If you're missing one of those in any of those sports, you're guaranteed to fail, okay? So those are the capacities. Now, when I looked at, we're going to train those, and there's going to be specific ways we train that, whether it's plyometrics, whether it's strength training, whether it's it, it's in uh, repeat sprint ability, whatever it may be, right, to fit those boxes. But then I looked at, there's specific skills. There's general skills and there's specific skills to all sports. For like American football, for instance, like 
Tackling is a specific skill. Blocking is a specific skill. A DB getting out of his backpedal is a specific skill. Okay, now these specific skills are fed by general skills. All right, and general skills for me in my sport of American football are going to be acceleration, deacceleration, maximum velocity capabilities, and then the fourth one is going to be um, change of direction. So our capacities are going to feed our general skills. Our general skills are going to feed our specific skills. And that's kind of the continuum that we look at. And I didn't incorporate deacceleration into that equation until after 2020. And, and that was just, that was a, a mistake on my part. I, you know, I, I like a lot of coaches, like I was like, you know what, we're getting high threshold decelerations in our change of direction work. And that wasn't the truth. So like we have catapult here. And what we did was we did a, we did an in-house case study and we looked at, okay, we did a change direction session and we looked at what was the highest peak um, decelerations in those. And what we found was that they, they, they weren't maximal compared to when we saw when we actually trained, okay, let's do a 10-yard acceleration to a, a full stop. And we saw anywhere between five or negative five to negative six meters per second on those decelerations versus in that change direction, we were right around 3.5. You know, so it was there was a there was a major drop-off. And what I looked at is, and what I look at all training is, is you want to create thresholds. And you want to create reserves, right? Like Charlie Francis became popular with speed reserve. Okay, if an athlete's faster, all right, if an athlete's faster, if I go from 20 to 22 miles an hour when I'm tired, I still have a higher reserve to run faster than previous before. I look at that and I took that to heart and I look at that for all training elements, for all training elements. I want a, I want a peak force reserve. I want to uh, a deacceleration reserve, right? I want to be able, I want my athletes to be accustomed to, you know, negative six or negative seven meters per second. I want to drive that attribute so that when they have to do three negative three meters per second decelerations and they have to do it 30 times, that's nothing to them because that's 50% of what their maximum is. Okay. So that's one of the things that we looked at was like, okay, well, how do we increase that specific ability to handle higher threshold decelerations? And, and, and the answer became, okay, let's make it a priority in training. All right. Let's pinpoint it. Let's teach the technical side of it because that's a huge component of it as well. Like when you look at soft, soft tissue injuries, when you look at non-contact ACLs, a lot of these things, and Damon Harper's research reflects this, is you're going to see that it's it's majority of the time it's in a deacceleration capacity. Like there's an event, a deacceleration event coming with a uh, defender approaching, right? So if we want to, again, mitigate because you can't prevent those injuries from happening. But if you want to mitigate those, train the technical side as well as the the physical side of it, right? The actual ability of it. So the first thing, I suppose, the, the most logical place to start is you had a problem, which was injuries. Other people out there may have a see a performance problem. We're seeing this on the pitch. Players can't get into particular positions to be to decelerate effectively. So let's test it. How have you gone around and about testing it? Because speaking to Damien, that's not as easy as may seem. So have you have you dived into the testing of deceleration with your guys? Yeah, we have. So uh, originally we were like, okay, let's make them sprint 10 yards, make them stop, you know, single leg. We'll go right, we'll go left leg to see if there's asymmetries. 
And what we'll do is, is we'll just measure the distance from the cone that told them to stop to their actual stop point. Right. So, all right. How, how, what's the distance in that? Um, you know, we got, we got some, some pretty good data with that. And then what, what the issue was is, are we standardizing the, the velocity into the deacceleration? And that was the big part. And that was the hard part to do. So what we we figured out is, is guys are trying to cheat the test because they want to be better. They want to get better marks, right? Like that's every athlete ever. So what they were doing is they were pulling up before and we're having to use our coach's eye to say, okay, that wasn't fast enough in or that was slow enough. So what we did was we put timing gates. So we don't count we, we don't count the score or the data unless it's at least 90% of their best 10-yard sprint. All right, so, you know, because, again, we want valid data. I don't want to just say and, and pat myself on the back because the kid cheated the test and he – he stopped two yards shorter, all right, we wanted to make sure that we're actually improving the metric that we're saying we're improving, right? Because this is for me to audit myself and my program to see if it's working. It's not for the coaches. It's not to blow their heads up and show how great we are. It's, it's to, to make actual, to, to intervene and actually make performance gains. So um, we introduced that and we had a lot of success. And then it came to the point where it's like, okay, well, what about the time to decel? Because that's a huge critical point, like component of, of deacceleration in itself. I want to be able to stop shorter, but I also want to be able to stop faster. And that's where we added in the video analysis from the side. So now not only are we measuring the 10 yards in, the 10-yard velocity in, right, the time in, but now we're also setting up a, a, an iPad on a tripod, on a, on a, a tripod and we're videoing how far it takes from the stop and how fast it takes them to stop. Because what I've noticed is my better athletes fast or start or stop at a much faster rate. Much faster rate than my, my athletes that are kind of like the average the average Joes. Um, and to me, that's a competitive advantage, right? Like, because I can wait longer to stop in the in the competitive field, which gives me the advantage because now you, you talk about deception. Like if I'm running in front of you. And you don't know when I'm going to stop, but I'm running at 16, 17 miles an hour, and I could just put the brakes on and stop in three steps. Like that, that's going to be hard to defend, right? Creating space. So that's that's kind of how we we figured out we got to you have the time. So you give them a, a basically a, a mark for velocity entry into the deacceleration, and then you got to look at time to stop, and you got to look at distance of the stop. You know, and then what we did was we measured right from left and see see if there was huge discrepancies. And for the most part, there wasn't, uh, you know, outside of some guys that have had previous injuries. Um, but and it's and again, it's it's fun too. like our guys got into it because we, we can make it competitive. You make it competitive. You call out. We made a leaderboard out of it. Just like, you know, like Tony Holler talks all the time about like rank, record, publish. Like we do that with our guys. And, you know, like we tell guys all the time. Um they're they're all young now, but you've probably seen it. You ever seen the movie D three Mighty Ducks? Uh, I have, yes, yeah. You know, you remember the cat that couldn't stop? He was the fastest guy on the field, but couldn't stop, or on the fast guy on the ice, yeah, couldn't yeah. stop. Yeah, you know, we we tell them all the time, you don't want to be that guy. I had to show them a clip of what it because I explained mm -hmm. it one day, and I keep forgetting these kids were born in like two thousand two. I had to show them a YouTube clip of what that was, and then they all thought it was hilarious. And like, oh, okay, we don't want to be Rodrigo. Yeah, don't be Rodrigo, man. Like you, you can't be fast and not have good breaks. <laughs> That's how it was. Yeah. You know, so we have fun with it. You know, we, nice. we measure, we, we, we make it competitive. And, um, you know, the more we've trained it, the more we integrate it, the better they've gotten at it.
And um, I, again, I think it has helped tremendously with mitigating a ton of injuries. You know, like knock on wood, we're extremely healthy right now going in our season. Um, you know, everyone talks about the vaccination of hamstring injuries with introduction and exposure to maximum velocity sprinting. But we also forget like deep knee flexion, okay, and the mechanism of deacceleration can attribute to hamstring injuries as well. So again, I looked at it, it was like, all right, it's a two-prong approach. Like we're getting deep knee flexion hamstring issues. We're mitigating those injuries by exposing them to those, with, especially with those high, high threshold, high intensity deaccelerations. And then from the maximum velocity speed side of it, we're attacking it from that side. I was like, so, you know, I was like, I, I, I felt really good about the fact that we weren't going to see a lot of soft tissue injuries going into the season because of those two combined in our, in our off season. So Joey, just logistically, so you would have all your athletes, um, max velocities, and then you'd pick, you'd get 90% of those and they run as they go through the timing gates that pops through. If they're over it, you can carry on with the process. If they're under it, they're doing it again. Yeah, we throw that data out. We don't we don't count it. So what we would do is we'd aim for uh, about three reps on each side. And we would just write down all the times. We'd write down their 10 time. And then through the film, they're getting the film. So we, we don't have to go back and write anything down as far as that's concerned. Because we'll go back later on and uh, we'll go and, and break down that, those, those, that, those, uh, those videos, those video clips to see, okay, where they are as far as time to stop and distance to stop. And then we'd write it down. Um, but if the time in wasn't good, we just throw it out. We're just we're just not going to count that data. You know, it's the same way. Like if we if you got a guy on a jump mat and he pikes, like you just throw the data out. Like we're not going to keep we're not going to we're not going to keep it. Um, one thing our sports scientist uh, Chad Herring did uh, really well was too is out on the field. He had next to uh, all the kids the the recording sheet. He had what their what their ninety percent threshold of their 10 was. So like if an intern's out there and recording and it was lower, they they don't even write it down. We just say, okay, we're good. We don't need it. You know? And then what we did was, is we made note of on the sheet. Okay. Rep two was bad. So that when we looked at the clip, we don't break the clip down and waste time and, and be inefficient. We can just delete that video clip and move on and, and find the ones that are right. Sounds good. So from your experience and the research and probably Damien's in coming back to Damien's influence here as well. What do you think the the qualities, the physical qualities and underpinnings of better deceleration performance with your guys? Then we'll get on to actually training it, which is obviously the yeah. good stuff. So again, I, I think it goes back to capacities. Like it, to me, and, and again, like, I'm regurgitating a lot of stuff that a lot of smarter people have, have put out. Like my, my job is to take what all these smart people do and try to fit it into my program and, and, and put the puzzle together. So, you know, what I looked at was is, okay, eccentric peak force, all right, is going to be, is going to be the foundation for all this, right? Like strength is, is the foundation for, for majority of our movements. So we're going to look at eccentric peak force, okay? That's going to be a quality. That's going to be, you know, like I look at Alvar Mill's hierarchy of, uh, of athletic qualities. Like that's going to be the bottom of, when we talk about deceleration, that's the bottom of the pyramid for us. Okay, it's going to be that eccentric peak force. Then it's going to be eccentric rate of force development. Okay, so that's going to be the next one. And then as you move up that pyramid, okay, it's going to get into the ability to utilize stretch shortening cycle. So now how do we take eccentric and turn it into a propulsive force? Right? How do we how do we how do we do that? Like and that's going to be through the stretch shortening cycle. 
And then the last one would have been dynamic stability, which when I think of dynamic stability, at least the way I interpret it and the way that I view it, it's going to be more of, of technique. Technique and timing are going, to be, are going to be key. So those are the four underpinning abilities or capacities that we look at and we train to drive deacceleration uh, here. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Joey. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we take the weight room and we replace it with what goes on on the track and on the turf. So how and what Joey programs for his athletes to really fine tune that deceleration technique so it transfers onto the field. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Smarterbase from Fusion Sport is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. Built on infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategy, process, and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using Smarterbase's robust API and custom-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps, and personalized visual dashboards. And with the Smarterbase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand behind it. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn how Smarterbase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And now back to the episode with Joey. Let's start in the weight room when it comes to trying to develop this, these, these qualities. So going through those, so eccentric peak force, in terms of exercise selection, in terms of programming in the weight room, what does that look like when you're trying to build that, that base that you mentioned about the pyramid? Yeah, so I look at it as... It's going to be your your submaximal lowering, right? So your 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 tempo lowering, like what was made very popular by Cal Dietz and by by Paul Quinn. Uh, your tempo, that you know, anywhere between four to six seconds. Um, we'll start there, and we'll do them with our main exercises. So whatever squat variation we're doing, whatever press variation we're doing, whatever pull up variation we're doing, we'll we'll start to implement those tempos into there. 
all right? Because I think that's a good way to introduce it. I think that the, I don't want to use the word holy grail, but I, I think when you look at increasing peak force, eccentric peak force, I think once you get into super maximal eccentrics, I think there is a, a ton of value and a ton of bang for your buck with training super maximal eccentrics. Now, the idea is you got to get there in a safe manner, um, you know, and you got to progress it so that you're just not, you, you can't just throw them into super maximal eccentrics. Like they have to be prepared for it because it is a, a tremendous stimulus and it is, it is, it is extremely hard and intense. So we'll get into those. We'll, and, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Waggle and, and the accentuated eccentric loading um, have been a huge, a huge, um, they've helped us tremendously um, with their research they put out and they've given us really good ideas about how to how to be creative in our setting because we'll have 30 to 35 guys in the weight room at one time. Um, and, you know, we're a smaller school, so we don't have weight releasers and all those different things to do. So we had to get creative. One way that we found that I really like and, and to implement super maximal eccentrics is, is I love uh, Hasfield squats, safety bar squats, hand-assisted, because what you can do is, is you can have them go unassisted, hand unassisted on the way down and really load them. And then they could go concentrate. They could grab that bar and pull themselves up out of that hole without really interfering with the technical side of the squat or if it's a split squat or whatever it may be. And um, we've seen a ton of a, a ton of value in using those here. Um, and it's safe. Like I haven't had a kid. We've gone up to 135% of our 1RM back, back squat max. And we've yet to have a kid fail. Um, we've yet to have, uh, uh, you know, just any kind of weird – injury or anything like those pop up using those, using that protocol, um, you know, and then with upper body wise, cause that's, the, I don't like using a ton of super maximum eccentrics with, with, with bench press. I just, I don't like, I've had a tech, a pec tear before. Um, and it may just be cause it's my own personal pet peeve, but I like to stay away from super maximal with bench pressing, but I do love super maximal lowering with overhead pressing. And you can do that by doing heavy push presses or even split jerks and controlling the load down. And I've seen a, t a tremendous amount of value in, in, in utilizing those in our program, um, building up just the robustness of, the, of, those, uh, of that shoulder girdle and that joint. Um, you know, I've seen guys split jerk 315 and three second lower it down to a front rack position. And those are usually my guys that press heavy anyway. Uh, you know, they could bench press 405 or more and, and all those things. So, um, you know, I've seen tremendous success with that. And it's safe, right? Like, if you can't lower it, you just drop the bar. That's the beauty of it. You know, you just drop the bar. And then with our pulling exercises, I like partner uh, partner chin-ups. So, like, you go up, concentrically, you pause. Your partner grabs your shoulders and pulls you down. Not rips you down, but pulls you down and gives you that stimulus. And you lower for, for three to four seconds. And it's an easy way to implement it, especially, like I said, if you have a bigger room with a lot of athletes and the 35 athletes, it's easy to implement because, you know, the partner goes and gets four or five reps. The other partner switches, gets four or five reps, and you go about your, your day. And, again, it's another stimulus. You know, I look at overhead athletes like our quarterbacks have benefited from that tremendously. Um, you know, that upper back strength is, is critical in supporting all the pressing and throwing that we do in this sport. Um, you know, so – and then Russian leans, and you can find ways for, for hip-dominant exercises, whether it's uh, a deadlift to a, a super maximal RDL, 
That's one way we found to, to implement it into hip hinging. Uh, we also, you know, doing it with our Russian leans is like strapping a band under the bench. So you have that band tension pulling you down even more and then releasing the band and coming back up. Um, you know, so again, it, it's, it's really, once you understand a protocol, it, it's your limitations, your creativity, right? It's your resources and your creativity is going to be the limitation, but that's how we implement super maximal training, uh, for peak force, for eccentric peak force. Uh, when we get in a rate of force again, I like, I like ALE for our jumps. So we'll load the eccentric portion of our jump. Um, you can do that with dumbbells. You can do that with bands. Uh, as soon as they go to initiate the concentric phase or the propulsive phase of the jump, they let go of whatever implementation they're, or implement they're using, and then they just jump. All right, and that's been that's been really good for us. I like weighted snap downs um, because you can get really really specific with positions when you get into those weighted snap downs. Uh, you know, so we've used trap bars if we wanted to really. Up the load, you can get up on your toes, you snap down, and you turn it. I tell my athletes all the time, the coach accused, turn it to a statue. As soon as your hips crease and your knees bend a little bit, stop. There should be no excess movement. You should be able to hold it. Okay. Um, you know, I like doing them with dumbbells because now you can get in the split variations, you get in the single leg variations, all those different ways that you can you can increase that. And then depth landings are really big for us. Uh, when you talk about rate of force development and, and eccentrically. So depth landings are gonna be critical. We start so, like, I went into research and, like, Verzhansky talked about for for peak force, like, you got to start at basically, like, almost, like, three and a half feet. It was crazy. I was like, holy, you know, like, three and a half feet for a 300-pound old lineman would be insane, right? Like, that's a ton of force. So, what we did is we looked at, okay, what's the average vertical jump per position group? All right, so if I got all my, all my old linemen, the average vertical is, say, 25 inches. Well, everyone, that's going to be our starting point for our depth landings. Right, because anything under that is not going to drive a stimulus. I could just have them do a vertical jump in place and land. Right, I'm trying to overload. I'm trying to overload the landing, which means that I got to I got to raise them higher than what they can actually jump. So we'll start vertical jump just to introduce it, and then we'll add we'll add three inches as we progress through the training blocks, um, and we'll get up to like plus nine inches on their vertical. So like for some of our skill guys, they're dropping off a 46 inch box and just. Wet. I mean, they're sticking it, they're holding it, they're not breaking at their knee, uh, they're able to control it, there's no excess movement. Um, and that's a, that's one way I really found to increase essential rate of force development and even peak force. Um, you know, and then obviously with your plyometrics, when you start to get into that stretch shortening cycle, you're also going to increase essential rate of force development by doing depth jumps and, and bounds and hurdle hops and all the consecutive hurdle hops. Just the, the what majority of people already are, are doing, you know. So, you know, to me, it's not overthink it. It's a lot of what, you know, uh, has been, I mean, all this stuff's been around forever, but a lot of what people are already doing from the stretch shortening cycle, from a plyometric cycle. You know, people speak on that all the time. I think there's a ton of resource out there. But I think once you once you you pair and you build into that stretch shortening cycle with, with increasing eccentric rate of force development, uh, eccentric rate of force development, eccentric peak force, I think you really start to see your plyometrics take off as well. And then from a dynamic stability, I mean, anytime. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go, mate. From a dynamic no, no, stability. No, go on. You're on, a, you're on a roll, Joey. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> from a dynamic stability standpoint, <laughs> go, I mean, go. Any, anytime that you can get them, like a landing is dynamic stability, right? Anytime you can get them to control position, 
in a rapid fashion, to me, that's dynamic stability, right? So like even doing like a single leg RDL is dynamic stability. Um, and we're going to get a lot of our dynamic stability work out on the field from actually practicing the skill of stopping, you know, and that's, that's where we'll get a lot of that going or from our plyometrics, like bounding is dynamic stability, right? When you land, when that ground contact happens, like being able to not fold and hold your posture and have great reactive strength and great posture to produce uh, propulsively into the next, the next jump is going to, that's dynamic stability to me. What I was going to say was the tempos right at the start of the program, when you're building this foundation, how long would you typically leave that in there before you progress to these more advanced things? Just to give coaches out there a little bit of an insight into that, you know, where it fits into the, week by week or day by day? Yeah, so I, I usually typically leave it in there for about four weeks. Um, you know, and I like to I like to add in, so the control tempo, and I, I, I ha also have the drop landings in there as well. And that's going to be my first progression into our eccentrics. And I'll do it right off, out of, out of the uh, off season, right out of the detraining period. So early off season, which is usually in January for us, we'll run it for about four weeks. And we'll evaluate after that four weeks and see, okay, are we are we handling those submaximal lows tempo? Are we, are we handling better in week four than we did in week one? Um, you know, and those those intensities are, are usually what I've found, at least from practical experience, and then just from from guidance from guys like Cal Dietz and, and, and Paul Quinn, is we'll stay anywhere between 60 and 85. I think once you pass 85% of a 1RM on those control lowering, you start to get into like shaky, like – potential dangerous scenarios, especially if they have to perform the concentric action by themselves without any assistance. Um, so again, because we want that concentric, we're, 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 we're hitting the eccentric part of it. We're emphasizing the eccentric part of it. So we want the concentric to be performed um, with, with good technique and in, in a smooth fashion. Like we don't want to overdo the concentric side of it, right? Because it, it is an early progression into super maximal. Okay. So We'll run that for four weeks, and then what we'll do is I'll build those drop landings, like I said, up to anywhere between six plus to nine plus inches above vertical jump. And then going into that second block, if I have that ability to have another four weeks of training because we're we're slaves to our calendar in, in the academia world over here. So sometimes I have three weeks, sometimes I have four weeks, sometimes I have two weeks. It just depends on how it fits. Uh, we'll move into the super maximal, and then we'll start – we'll move into our depth jumps uh, after that four week block, that preparatory block. Just to confirm the, the, the snap downs, just explain that exercise. So it's, it's, it's dropping the weight, but obviously getting down there to catch it and stick it. Is that right? So like a lot of people do for like jump technique where they put their hands over and they snap down and hold that position, that landing position yep. of a jump. We'll just do that weighted. Now, obviously we don't have a trap bar with 300 pounds over our head, but what we'll do is we'll get in a tall upright position and kind of like you said is we want that feeling of falling or dropping. And then we want to, as soon as we get into that, where our knees and hips crease enough, we want to stop that momentum and deaccelerate as fast as humanly possible. And again, that dynamic stability that comes in part with that, we want to turn into a statue. I want to stop. I want to stick. I want to be strong in that position. I want to hold that position for about a two second count. And then I want to reset. And, Again, it's it's. I look at it. It's it's very similar to uh, catching a power clean. As far as in terms of the the mechanism, um, so but you can. 
you can increase the speed of the fall. Okay, and you can increase the overall total load than you would be able to do with just power clean. So again, that's why I like that. I, I like that exercise a lot, especially for eccentric rate of force development. Um, and then again, the more you load it, it's going to be more, it's going to lean more towards and, and bleed into peak force. But to me, it's a great exercise and the learning curve is fast. I mean, really fast. I got my eight-year-old son to figure it out in like two sets, you know, because it's just get on your toes, flat feet landing, hips track back, strong back, strong position, turn into a statue, hold it. Be strong in that position, stand up, reset. Let's take, let's take the learning and the development of this quali- these, these qualities onto the field or onto the, onto the track or onto the court, wherever people are. This is probably something that makes more than often than not, strength and conditioning coaches are a little bit nervous, pretty less confident on the field, the track of the court than they are in the weight room. So uh, let's have a little dive into the, into the program that, that includes deceleration technique development out onto the court, field, or track. What does it look like for you? So again, we want to, what we want to do is we want to get them uh, to where we're stationary and then we add velocity to it, right? Because velocity is going to increase the intensity of the drill. So what we'll do is, is we'll have them, um, again, and a lot of the weight room transfers to the field as far as just uh, the movement selection and the exercise selection. So like our weighted snap downs provide our first progression to true deacceleration, to bilateral stopping outside. Right. So I don't have to go revisit that outside and have them stand up and put their arms up and snap down. Right. I don't have to do that because that's already built in. I've already done that at some point in that week in that weight room. So what we do is where we start our original progression is, is I'll have them stand up tall and I'll have them get into a, a unilateral stop. So we'll go right leg and we'll be up tall and it'll be a snap down. It'll be fast. And what we're looking for is we're looking for good knee and hip flexion. OK, good knee and hip flexion. I want them to get down. All right, I wanted them to, to get their center of gravity down as fast as possible. I want full foot contact. Okay, I don't want to be on my toes when I'm trying to stop. I tell our guys all the time, toes are for gas, heels are for brakes. Okay, I want to get my foot to roll from my heel to the front of my foot. Okay, I want my torso more upright and less leaning forward. Right, because once I add in velocity, when you look at it from the technical side of deacceleration, I have to get my hips and knees in good flexion, but I actually have to keep my chest and, and my, my, my trunk more erect. That's going to help me sink and stop, right? If I'm leaning forward, I'm going to continue my momentum forward. So I want to counteract that by getting my center of gravity behind my foot and behind my hip. And the only way to do that is to lean back, right? Like going down the stairs. I, I tell our guys all the time, good, dece- good deceleration looks like going downstairs. That's what it looks like. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll introduce that in the first week, first two weeks by standing up and we'll snap down. So we'll go right leg in front. So we're up tall. Boom. We stick it. Hold it for a second. Reset. Stick it. Hold it. Reset. And we'll do that for a few sets. And then what we'll do is, is we'll introduce it with an assisted element to it. So instead of running into it, We'll use a band. So I'll have a band. We'll tie two. We, we got uh, lead FTS bands. We tie two of them together, gray bands, and we just pull them. So there, there is some velocity into it. Okay, I, I tell them a three-step decel. So I say, I want your right leg. It's three steps. One, two, three, stick. One, two, three, stick. And we're adding that 
that uh, assistant element in. We're increasing the velocity. We'll do that, and then what we'll do is we'll we'll introduce them to more high uh, high intensity, higher velocity entry D cells with a five yard build, but we'll stop on both legs. Right. The 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 more the the wider your base, the bigger your base is the more that you can redistribute that force amongst that base. So we don't want to just put them in a single leg right off the bat. We want to get them used to it. We get them into d- d- double leg D cells. Again, you're talking about it's a very similar position to what that snap down is in the weight room. We'll do that for a week or two, two weeks. And then what we'll do is with our skill guys is we'll start to increase the gap of uh, entry point. So we'll go from five yards to 10 yards to 15 yards. Once we get to 15 yards, we'll back it back down to 10, and then we'll start our unilateral progression. So then, so then what, what happens then with the unilateral progressions? It just continues with the bilateral. So we'll just increase the distance. So I cap it at 20 because I'm like, a- after 20, I mean, you're just, it's sketchy. You know, cause, and, and it's unrealistic because at 20 yards, my faster guys are going to be right around 20 miles an hour. And there's not many times that they're going to be at 20 miles an hour and have to put the brakes on that in that in that fashion. They're usually going to tempo and, and start to decelerate or start just to slow down as far as like their own actual speed. Because what we found was, and it's, it's funny, I got an argument with uh, A.J. Brown about this in the offseason, is I told them, I said receivers specifically, because they're usually the ones that have the highest decel thresholds because of the nature of their position. Okay, followed by really the uh, cornerbacks are the second in, in our case study here. What I got in an argument with AJ Brown because I was like, I was like, dude, you live at 17 to 18 miles an hour. He's like, I was like, every route you run, post, comeback, whatever it is, it's going to be at 17 to 18 miles an hour. And Tony V at XBE talks about this all the time. And he's like, no, nah, I run at 20 miles. All my routes are fast. I'm fast. I run them all at 20. So we put the catapult on them. I had to run a route tree. And his average mile per hour was 17.3. And I laughed my ass off. And I was like, I told you. See, so a lot of times, again, in sport, you're not going to be at 20 miles an hour and put the brakes on. There's going to be a, a, a tempo into putting the brakes on. So I might be at 20 for a second. And then I might slow down just a little bit to 17, 18, then boom, 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 rapid fire. I'm dropping that thing down to nothing. Um, so again, after 20 miles an hour, our fast guys are at roughly 20 miles an hour at, at, at 20 yards. Like we, it's unrealistic and, and it's potentially dangerous. You know, we want to create a reserve, but we also want to train within a safe environment. We don't want to do harm by the athlete. From a preparation perspective for the next movement, so, like you said, very rarely a, uh, an athlete's going to get to that kind of miles per hour and just stop. They're going to be stopping for a second, then prepping for the next movement. They change direction, going left, right, or going again, or coming backwards. What are you doing body position-wise to prepare your guys for that next one, for that next movement? Yeah, so, I mean, you get into where you increase specificity of of play right like of their movements in play so you how rarely you're rarely going to see a guy just run straight ahead and then stop straight ahead right like that's not going to happen we're trying to train that 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 specific or that general skill right we're trying to increase eccentric braking forces in that skill then what you got to do is you got to you got to reverse engineer from the game like okay well what what are some predominant movements that they're going to stop and then get out of and go into like you talked about? And a lot of times, so like our DBs, what we found was is they're going to backpedal. They're going to backpedal and then they're going to 
brake and drive forward or drive to a 90 degree or a 45 degree angle. So let's incorporate that in our drill selection. So as we climb that continuum of specificity and we, when we, we navigate through that off season, getting closer to preseason, we'll start to integrate those specific elements into our training of that, of that capacity. Cause that's the idea, right? Is that we want to increase skill. That's, that's the name of the game. We want to increase specific skills. And if we're not getting close to those skills, you're not going to have that transfer and that carryover to those skills. So with our, with our receivers, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, we'll go 10 yards and we'll have you break and, or we'll have you stop and then drive into a 90 degree cut, you know, or we'll have you run as fast as you can for 10 yards and then stop uh, laterally versus at, at straight ahead, you know, just little deviations to try to, again, up the specificity of those exercises. And again, I think you have to have a good coach's eye and you have to have a good knowledge of the game and position demands and just kind of figure it out on your own, you know, because it's different for it. it could, it's going to be different for a, a center in basketball. It's going to be different for a tennis player. It's going to be different for a quarterback versus a receiver, whatever it is. You got to you have to go and investigate that and figure out, OK, is it close enough to where we're going to get some transfer? And am I, am I still driving the, the, the general skill and the capacities that go along with that specific skill? Right. Or is it just, or is it just practice? Like if it's too close to practice, I need to back down because we're still in the off season. I need to find ways to increase the intensity of it or, or, you know, to make sure I'm still on point training those capacities and that general skill to make sure that it feeds a specific skill, but they're going to get practice when we get to to season. I just, I need to bridge the gap enough to make sure that there's transfer to that. So good. So much good stuff there. And I think you've, you've exhausted the questions that I did have for you. Um, so, so yeah, such good work. And I would point people to the two articles. I think it's two that you've done on simply faster. Like I said, I'd love that to be on Sportsbiz, but I'll, I'll settle for the good info being shared on simply faster, um, to check them out. Cause there's loads of videos that many of which you've um, just described and, and talked us through there, but there's there's so much good info from the the base in terms of your beliefs around the the mechanics of deceleration, but also then the the programming and the uh, exercise selection. But Joey, anyone that wants to reach out to talk to you about this kind of stuff or anything else for that matter, what's the best place? Where's the best uh, social media platforms to get you on? I think uh, either Instagram or Twitter, Coach Joey G. Um, you, you DM me or hit me up. Um, my email is listed on the, on the school website. Uh, it's jgarasso at fau.edu. Um, you know, I'm always open to, to interacting too. I think it's, I, I like giving back. I like, I like talking shop because you, you usually learn more than what you give. Um, so, you know, I'm always open to, to exchanging and networking. So if anyone's got any questions, feel free to hit me up. And there's some videos of you training your little boy as well. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I, so I have my eight year old and my, my, my Achilles heel has always been when I was an athlete was my top speed. My reactive strength was terrible. I, I sucked. Uh, I mean, I was, I could vertical jump. Well, I could power clean the house and then you get me past 15 yards. And I was like a Buick on flat tires. You know, I just couldn't go. And I told, I told my wife, I was like, we're going to give our, our son and, you know, knowing my genetics, I'm going to give him every, every competitive advantage. And so we started training him and, and we started doing some, some track work because track's a huge sport down here in South Florida. When I mean huge, I mean, we went to a, a meet and there was 5,000 kids. I couldn't believe it. It was insane. Right. And, and you talk about like elite kids. 
Like, I, I, so one of the kids on, on my son's football team, uh, he took third at nationals and he ran 13-1 at eight years old in the 100-meter dash. 13-1. He's eight. Okay, so it's competition's crazy. So, you know, my son, he's competitive. I was like, all right, well, you want to train? We could train. And we started introducing some some track training to him. And I started posting some videos of him. And I got blown up like, hey, what program are you doing? What are you doing? This, this, that, and that. So I, I put together a 15-week program, and I put it out there for people to purchase. I was like, here, why not? Share it. Um, and that's kind of blown up. And that's been cool to see people actually – take some of that, the the training that we do with my son and, and put it to their kids and help their kids out. So that's been cool too, to see that. Good to see. Great to hear it going well. And I'd definitely encourage people to to follow you on Instagram and Twitter because there's loads of good stuff. But Joey, thank you very much for giving up an hour of your time. Really do appreciate it and encourage people to check those two articles out and uh, look forward to reading more and, and hearing more. Absolutely, man. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for tuning in to episode 423 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Joey for coming on, sharing his insights, sharing his reflections when it comes to deceleration testing and training. Big thanks to Team Builder, Hawking Dynamics, Smarterbase, Omega Wave, and Santa College for sponsoring this episode today. Thank you to you guys for tuning in. Make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And every Thursday morning UK time, a expert speaker expert coach just like joey will be delivered free of charge into your podcast player with it itunes youtube spotify or anywhere else so big thanks to you for your support and look forward to chatting to you next time